Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Thank you, brother. Morning, everyone. Always wonderful to be with the Gak Church family. Uh, I'm sorry to say yet again, I am doing the preach and run. Uh, it's not the ideal, but it's uh, you know, still has its merits. Uh, feel free to write in your connection care cards any questions uh, that you might have. Let me lead us briefly in prayer and do keep your Bibles open at Matthew 3 and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that as our loving Father, you speak to us in your word for our good. Uh, we pray that uh, you'd help us to concentrate, uh, to rejoice in uh, learning from your word and that through it we will become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say I am? The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say I am? 
The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that uh, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Jesus asked them. Who do you say I am? No matter what anyone might say about the biographies of the life of Jesus, it is undeniable that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also, though in a slightly different manner, John, all saw it as absolutely imperative that the question of the true identity of Jesus gets addressed. In the minds of these gospel writers, and also in the minds of the apostles and Jesus himself, the identity of Jesus of Nazareth is of the utmost importance. In fact, so we see in the New Testament, uh, the identity of Jesus, what we ascribe to him, will affect our lives more than any other single, uh, single consideration. And that is why Matthew chapter 3 is one of God's greatest gifts to his church. Because in that very last verse, we get God's own definitive answer to the question of who Jesus really is. This is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased, says the Lord of the universe. Now, even though what is recorded here for us are the audible words of God, spoken in a context whereby the unity of the triune Godhead is more on display than it had ever been previously, it's still very easy and, frankly, all too common for us to underestimate and underappreciate just how world-shattering and life-changing these words really are. So the task before us this morning is therefore very simple. We're going to work our way through Matthew 3 in the lead-up to this climactic event to make sure we understand and appreciate some of the most important words ever heard by any human ears. Uh, it begins, of course, chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days, i.e., roughly speaking, within that time, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, the notion of the kingdom of heaven can be rather foreign to us. Uh, we usually think of a kingdom as a place ruled over by a monarch, like the kingdom of Bhutan. Or if you're in England, you know that you're in part of the United Kingdom. But if I were to say to you something like, Where is the animal kingdom? you'd all think that's a silly question, which it is, because it's not about a, a place, but about a hierarchical structure of, of rule and relationship. And you can observe the animal kingdom in, in many places. If I say, who's the king of the jungle? I expect a Sunday school response. But it doesn't really matter which jungle I'm speaking about. The answer is always the same. That's right, the lion, sorry. That's right, Jesus. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about a place, but an order, a structure, a rule. See, humanity in our rebellion against God, we have dethroned God and put ourselves at the top of the chain. The sad result is that the kingdom of humanity all throughout history is marked by suffering and death. So throughout Bible history, people have been excited 
at God's revelation that the time will come when his kingdom is revealed, his kingdom is realized and comes into effect, where he is rightly at the top of the chain and that therefore peace and life rather than suffering and death become the mark of the new order. John the Baptist's whole teaching ministry centered upon the claim that this new kingdom was very soon to come into effect. So you need to turn to God as king and deny yourself rule, which is what repentance actually is. The clear implication is that when God's kingdom does come into effect, it will involve divine judgment, hence the need to repent. But why did so many people, as we see uh, in verse 5, why did so many people believe John's teaching that the kingdom of God was really soon to come into effect? Well, the answer is that Israelite religion, Judaism, involved future expectation. For Aussies, for us, our future seems kind of static. Things are pretty much going to go on the way they always have since white settlement, except technology will keep advancing. Uh, That's about it. I mean, we might get, you know, conquered by the Russians, but even if that's going to happen, we're not going to hear about it until it happens. So things are just kind of static for us. But with Israel, they had a really dynamic history. God would often reveal that a great change was coming, and then, of course, each time he would actually deliver on it. Once upon a time, God's people had been exiled away from Jerusalem, a whole nation uprooted from their land. And they'd been taken uh, as captives to Babylon. Instead of being ruled over by God, they were ruled over by a despot, Nebuchadnezzar. But God said he'd one day come and take them back out of that servitude. And they'd know when it was going to happen because he'd send a, a special messenger to figuratively clear the road, make a straight path, if you like, for that great procession led by God. And that did indeed happen in their history. But not quite on the grand scale that Israel might have been hoping for. There remained some great expectation of God rescuing his people from under foreign rule. So the same scripture that applied during the time of Babylon began to make sense in the first century when Israel were ruled over by the Romans and John the Baptist was telling people to symbolically prepare to be rescued by getting out of there, going into the wilderness. And so that's why we have verse 3. This is he, John the Baptist, uh, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. There's an Old Testament expectation that the Israelites had actually seen happen, and here it kind of looks like the same thing's happening again. That's a very good reason to believe uh, John the Baptist's claim. Again, In Malachi chapter 4, the very last words in our Old Testament, Israel were told that before the dreadful day of judgment comes, God would resend a messenger, in this case uh, the prophet Elijah, to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, that is figuratively to kind of go back to square one with God after having drifted so far away, turn back. John the Baptist, who is a prophet, looked and sounded like the prophet Elijah did. And so verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, just like the prophet Elijah. He had a leather belt around his waist, just like the prophet Elijah. His food was locusts and wild honey, which is the food of a wilderness wanderer, which of course Elijah himself was 
too. Which is probably why, verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is serious. And they believed him. Uh, Put simply, because God had indeed revealed things that would happen and then acted upon them in the past, Israel had a right expectation that the things God said about his kingdom coming were very real. And because the telltale signs were obvious in the ministry of John the Baptist, people were indeed preparing for God's kingdom to take effect by making sure they weren't swept up in the judgment. And uh, baptism in the Jordan River away from Jerusalem is a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, The Jordan River really represents being back to square one with God because it's there that Israel for the first time entered into their promised land. Also, if you are familiar with uh, the Jewish law, often when you'd been declared ceremonially clean after being cured of a disease or a defilement, you were to wash your body and or clothes outside the camp before you were fit to enter. In John's baptism of repentance, it's basically giving people a way of publicly declaring, hey God, I've drifted far from you, but I know your kingdom is about to come with judgment, so I repent of my sins. I want in. And you've got to understand, this was actually a huge movement in the first century. We read in the book of Acts, I think chapter 19, some 40 years on and as far away as the city of Corinth, that there were people who identify themselves as disciples of John. They've received John's baptism. And we're yet awaiting the baptism of the Spirit by believing in Jesus' name. But of course, there were also those in Israel who thought they didn't need to go back to square one with God. Because they hadn't drifted away from Him at all. They thought they'd be fine in the coming judgment because they were on good terms with God on account of their legalistic, righteous and pedigree. They are, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So verse 7, but when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There's a good way to open a sermon, isn't it? You brood of vipers. Uh, By the way, it's kind of good because you know you can trust a preacher who isn't interested in popularity compared to his interest in truth, right? Now, notice these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not coming to be baptized. It says they're coming to the place where he was baptizing, presumably to assess what he's doing. As religious leaders of the middle and upper class, which they were, Pharisees, middle, Sadducees, upper, they didn't see a need to turn back to God, which is probably why Johnny's right to go so extreme with his preaching. It's those who assume they have no need of repentance that ought to get the strongest warnings. And so in verse 8, John continues to do just that. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he dares to say to these religious leaders. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Your pedigree means nothing. God can get a rock, do the same thing as what you do. And verse 10, here's a real die warning. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit 
will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Very unsubtle, very thinly veiled, saying, you're not repenting, you're going to hell. The logic is simple. If you haven't really got anything to show for it, no telltale signs of the good deeds of the changed life, then you haven't truly repented. It's like the person who thinks that because they got water splashed on them when they were a baby, or because they're on the roll at a local church, that they don't need to be concerned with genuine, life-changing repentance. It's like the person who gives lip service to Jesus, but whose words and life look no discernibly different whatsoever from the rest of the pagan world. Repentance isn't actual turning to God, to joyfully acknowledging and obeying His rule in all areas of life. That's something that simply can't be hidden. And it's people who bear fruit in keeping with such repentance, who obviously live not for themselves but for God, who are fit for God's kingdom. And so some people need a real brutal snapping out of their complacency to actually get that point. Hence, John continues with the dire warning that the inauguration of God's kingdom will most certainly come with terrifying judgment. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now to us this side of Christ, we don't usually think of God the Holy Spirit doing the work of bringing terrifying judgment. The idea that there's this one baptism with two elements, namely the Holy Spirit and fire, seems rather strange. We usually think of the Spirit's baptism as the means by which our rebellious hearts are regenerated and we're able to turn and put our faith in Jesus. And that is absolutely right. But it is not what John is speaking about here. John's an Old Testament prophet. I know he's in the New Testament, but he's an Old Testament prophet. He knows that God is the holy judge and therefore God the Spirit is the wind of holy judgment. At one level even more so than the Father and the Son. Because if you remember, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in particular that is the unforgivable sin in the New Testament. The pouring out of God's Spirit in the Old Testament is very often, and specifically according to the prophet Joel, an act of judgment, whereby the moon will turn to blood, signaling the great and dreadful day. Here, John is making the point that you need to turn back to God to be immersed in repentance before it's too late because the time is coming when the only other baptism available will be the dreadful immersion by God's holy wind of judgment and therefore of fire. Thankfully, though John probably hadn't fully realised it, when God's kingdom was inaugurated, that judgment would be delayed. God's kingdom coming would also involve a great salvation. John, I think, learned more about this two-stage inauguration when Jesus came to be baptised. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. 
But John tried to deter him, understandably, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. And then John consented. Uh, Like John, we're right to be a bit worried that Jesus wants wants to undergo a baptism of repentance that involves the confession of sin. Not least because Jesus has no sins to confess. Well, Jesus of Nazareth, I baptize you, but uh, first, uh, can you confess your sins? Uh, I was tempted. It seems John knows that this is a problem. Or at the very least, he knows something of Jesus' unparalleled righteousness before God. Perhaps he even knows or suspects already that somehow Jesus is the Lord, the King, who ushers in the new kingdom who rules in God's new kingdom and to whom he therefore needs to express his own turning back to God before it's too late. But whatever the case, the reason Jesus insists on being baptised at this particular time was about to become apparent. And it's the climax of this chapter and forms the main point of the sermon. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, the really big flagship occasion on which God spoke to people once upon a time was, of course, Mount Sinai. God came down the mountain and there was thunder, lightning, smoke and fire. And when he spoke with his voice... People begged Moses to make it stop lest they die. And God himself warned that if anyone gets too close to the mountain, he will break out against them. Here, God speaks directly from heaven and by his spirit, he also descends, not with symbols of judgment, such as fire, but with a symbol of peace, such as the dove. And the content of his speech is absolutely astounding. No human could ever possibly have come up with this. And I'll tell you why. There are two major Old Testament figures that Israel were right to expect would one day show up. The first is God's all-powerful, all-conquering king. The one who would be king when God's kingdom came into effect. We read about him in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, one of the most important psalms, which poetically describes all the rulers of the kingdoms of humanity as being in rebellion against God. But God, after having a bit of a laugh at their rebellion, then installs his king in the capital of his new kingdom. And when the decree is made, God says, you are my son and I am your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. And it is almost certain that Jews, in totality, saw this figure as their coming Messiah. But then there's another prominent Old Testament character who is about as far removed from God's king as you could possibly imagine, namely the suffering servant of the later parts of Isaiah. Many of us will be familiar with with what's said about this suffering servant, particularly in chapter 53 of Isaiah. We all like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, this this suffering servant, 
the iniquity, the, the, the sin to of us all. Instead of a king, this person would be an absolute slave, a servant who suffers great indignation because the sins of God's people in total are placed upon him. And he, like a sacrificed lamb being led to the slaughter, pays the price for the sin of his people. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, one from whom people would hide their faces, as far away as you can get from an all-powerful conquering king. And when this suffering servant is introduced to us in Isaiah chapter 42, God speaks and says, This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. The reason Jesus chose to be baptized by John uh, was to show John, as well as to John's audience, and ultimately to show us, that although he certainly is the conquering ruler of God's kingdom, the one who brings terrifying judgment, he would also identify with the sinners who need to turn back to God. He would suffer on account of their sin to pay the penalty for it so that they might not have to. God's kingdom was in fact inaugurated not long after John the Baptist finished his ministry. But it was inaugurated in such a way that the judgment was delayed and the price for humanity's rebellion was paid, ensuring genuine rather than merely symbolic repentance. It was inaugurated when the judge of all the world, God's conquering king, lowered himself to the point of obedience to death on a cross and died as the suffering servant. John the Baptist would identify Jesus as both the one who brings judgment and fire and also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And more importantly, God identifies Jesus as that. Jesus is not only the conquering king, but also the suffering servant. God himself identifies Jesus as both Lord and Saviour, both all-powerful king and despised sacrificial servant. And that is why it has always been true that either Jesus is both Saviour and Lord, Lord and Saviour, or he can't possibly be either. If Jesus is not your Lord and Saviour, if Jesus is not your Saviour and Lord, then you've got a different, therefore a fake, Jesus. The idea of an angry God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament is so ridiculously unbiblical as to be laughable. The one true and living God, Jesus Christ, is both holy Lord who will punish all sin, and loving Saviour, who has paid the price for all sin. And I'm going to briefly draw out the implications of this supremely important teaching, this God-given and in his day audible teaching, in just a moment. But the first and most obvious thing to say is that well, there's a chance someone in a room this size still needs to have their initial repentance before it's too late. See, the kingdom of God is nearer now than it was in John's day. It has actually already begun, but in a two-stage process whereby the judgment element has been delayed, in effect. And the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, it will not be to be the suffering servant again. 
He will come back as the all-powerful king and judge who will expel all who have not turned back to God in repentance. He will return a second time not to bear sin, Hebrews uh, 9, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him and to bring the wrath and fire to those who by self-seeking reject the truth. I recognize it's hard in 21st century Australia to have a serious future expectation of Jesus returning in judgment to establish his eternal kingdom. But it will be even harder for people who reject this truth. If you have not yet denied yourself and turned back to God in repentance, then like the prophet John, I can only warn you in the desperate hope that you do. Repent. Do you recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Christ, the all-powerful ruler? If so, then true repentance is needed. For true repentance, you've got to say yes to Jesus. You're my king. I live for you, not for me. But you can't say yes to Jesus without also saying no to self and to the world. You can't just follow him. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God who will finish inaugurating God's eternal kingdom with a terrifying judgment. Have you truly repented? But secondly, do you recognize Jesus Christ as the suffering servant? The one who has suffered and died in order to pay for your and my sinful rebellion against God. If that's the case, then genuine, not just symbolic, but genuine repentance is possible you can be absolutely sure that no matter how bad your thoughts words deeds have been no matter how detestable or even worse how good and upright and moral you've been while still living for yourself rather than God no matter how bad or defiantly good you have been genuine repentance has been made possible by Jesus on the cross have you turned and put your trust in him for salvation Not trusting in your good deeds, not trusting in your baptism, not trusting in church attendance, trusting in the suffering servant who alone has paid the price for all your sin. Flee from the coming wrath by turning to Jesus as Lord and trusting him as Saviour. For those of us who have made the right choice and recognise Jesus as both Lord and Saviour and are therefore looking forward to the final inauguration of his kingdom, then I bet you all saw this one coming. It's time to play bumper bowling. No, I haven't lost the plot. I used to hate bumper bowling. It's not real, man. You've got to learn to throw that thing. If you get a gut of all tough rocks, you're not going to hit anything, right? Then the bowling companies work out, we'll have a lot more kids involved and invested in this if we can avoid them getting gutter balls. And so they just put up a rail on two sides. You go too far one side, going to get bummed if you go too far the other side you're going to get bummed this is the christian life quite easily we find ourselves relying too much and presuming too much upon the grace of god which is thorough and absolute christ has paid for all sins past present future there is nothing that can separate you from the love of god in christ jesus if you're one of his right but sometimes you kind of presume upon that grace a little bit too much doesn't matter so much if i sin no bump Your sin does matter because Jesus is all-powerful, mighty, conquering Lord. 
who will judge each and every sin. Now, of course, that judgment is not going to result in you being expelled from his kingdom. It'll be something that you pass through and enjoy an eternity with God forever. But some people go this way. I must only ever be absolutely terrified of the prospect that I have not lived righteously enough. And frankly, I'm petrified that I'm never good enough for God. I'm not a real Christian. Bump! Knocks you back in. Because Jesus is the suffering servant who in amazing love and and other person-centeredness has said, no, I have taken all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame, 100% removed on myself. I've clothed you with my righteousness. Now, I don't know where everyone's at in their Christian walk. Work out where you're at and work out where you need to get bumped and thank God and pray that he does. Please, God, I've been a bit too slack when it comes to feeling, you know, when it comes to appreciating the heinousness of my sin, bump me back with a lordship. Please, God, I feel like I'm useless, I'm no good. Bump me back with your suffering servant. Make sense? Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, the ruler, the all-powerful, all-conquering Lord. And Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant the one in whom you delight and uphold, who took upon himself the penalty for all our rebellion against you. Father, I pray for anyone that is uh, as yet to repent before it's too late, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd convict them of the truth and turn them in repentance and faith to Christ. For those who are in Christ, Father, when we take your grace too flippantly, please bump us back in line, remind us of the Lordship of your Son. For those who fear and give too much weight to the power of the devil, the sin, the flesh, please bump bump us back in place, uh, remind us of the suffering servant. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.